when we think about investing, it's the same thing. It's not a question of my wealth coming at the price of your health, because if you're not doing well, either financially or in terms of your health, then ultimately I'm connected to you and that affects me as well. You're listening to Catalyst Talks, conversations with change agents, outliers, superheroes, and truly conscious leaders modeling what it is to be an unstoppable force for good in this world. What lit these catalysts on fire to do their work and what nuggets of wisdom can they share with a world literally on fire? This podcast is for you who cares deeply and seeks to catalyze the world. I'm your host, Stephanie Traeger. I'm a consciousness catalyst and soul coach to superstar change agents in business leadership and life. In this podcast, I wear an eclectic mix of hats, including earthkeeper, healer, mindset coach, lawyer, business sustainability, and impact strategist. My intention is holding space for higher purpose, peak wellness, and soul mastery so we can live in harmony with ourselves, each other, and nature. The whole idea of Catalyst Talks in these conversations is to awaken consciousness, unlock higher purpose, and learn what it really takes to catalyze change in that scale. Subscribe to our new podcast and help us grow. We're aiming to reach a million people at least in 2020. Let's wake up the world together. My guest today on Catalyst Talks podcast is Jed Emerson. Jed is an internationally recognized thought leader in impact investing, social entrepreneurship, and strategic philanthropy. He has played founder roles with some of the nation's leading venture philanthropy, community venture capital, and social enterprises. He's the originator of the concepts blended value and total portfolio management, which we dive into in this conversation. He has extensive experience leading staffing and advising funds, firms, social ventures, and foundations pursuing financial performance with social environmental impact. In addition to his writing, Jed currently focuses on working with families, exploring how to ensure long-term legacy by managing their full net worth for impact. And we hear some examples of how he's doing that in this conversation. He also advises investment firms on the implications of impact investing frameworks for their practice. Jed has written extensively on topics as diverse as sustainable investing, performance metrics, impact investing, and sustainable hedge fund investing. He works with foundations, investment funds, individuals, social enterprises, and businesses to assist those who seek to maximize the total value of their investing and entrepreneurship to attain their personal and professional visions. He is the author of several books and his recent book, The Purpose of Capital, Elements of Impact, Financial Flows, and Natural Being is one that we dive into today. We start this conversation off really in the nuts and bolts of what is impact investing, really, why is it important for everyone to understand where the world of finance and capital is going and how to participate in that vision? And then we go deeper towards the middle and end of the show where we are talking about Jed's deeper work and what he is putting forth in this book, The Purpose of Capital. I am extremely honored to have him on the show today. And I really encourage you all to listen to this, share this. His message is so deeply important. His humility is so inspiring. And for anyone who is in this journey of inquiry, of self-inquiry around purpose and what does your next iteration look like, what is yours to do right now, this is a really inspiring conversation to channel into. Jed Emerson, you are an internationally recognized thought leader in impact investing, social entrepreneurship, and strategic philanthropy. And you've played founder roles with some of the nation's leading venture philanthropy, community venture capital, and social enterprises. 
And I want to thank you so much for being here with me because I know you're in high demand as the world is expanding to receive your message, your leadership, and the true benefits and obvious necessity of impact investing. So in our conversation, I want to hear you define impact investing. This audience might be newer to the term and there might be great opportunity here. So I want to also get to know the person behind your deep thinking And as a catalyst of one of the most important movements of our time, I also want to unpack some of the deeply transformational themes in your book, The Purpose of Capital, Elements of Impact, Financial Flows, and Natural Being. So tell me, Jed, where are you in this present moment? Where are you exactly? And how are you doing today? I'm coming to you from Manhattan in New York City, the uh, traditional tribal land of the Lenape people, and am pleased to have been a part of... uh, Starting in this community, I was born in uh, not too far from here, actually, (laughs) and then uh, moved to Colorado, moved to Oregon, moved to other places. And so my wife and I came back about two years ago and then uh, were here uh, for the lockdown earlier this spring and have been here for the most part off and on through that. Well, it's interesting. I really want to get to this after this question about this. When you just mentioned the lockdown, I was it wasn't going to go there, but I'd be, I was thinking about how if this pandemic and the crazy fires you mentioned earlier were actually almost touching your land or your your place in Colorado, like had this all been unfolding, how, how would that have shown up in your book? But I want to start with the first question about your book, you speak and you write about how everything is linked to worldviews. And that's something that I really resonate with and why I was like, I got I really want to be in conversation with you because that's something I think deeply on as well. And I'd love to hear why worldviews, why you find that as the crux of so much of the work that you do. Well, I think that it, it plays out in a number of ways. One is that As we age and we look back on our lives, I think many of us can identify almost, you know, different people (laughs) that we have been at different stages in our lives. And you begin to realize that the person that you were in your 20s is very different from the person you are in your 60s. And yet there are some deep truths that carry through each stage, truths more with a, a capital T. And then there are small truths that you embrace at different stages that actually can shift over time. As I was working on the book and I was thinking about humanity's kind of journey and experience and the diversity of perspectives and cultures and worldviews that have been dominant and not so dominant at different points in our own kind of global history, you realize that, that anything that you think is true really may or may not be. And it it forces you, I think, to, and I don't want to be too flip, but it forces you to a posture of humility with regard to not only who you are and what you're trying to do, but the larger kind of process of our collective kind of being and becoming uh, as parts of our process uh, of being present in the world. So impact investing, would you say that that impact investing is a worldview? Also, tell us what it is and and is it a worldview? So impact investing is an approach to capital and wealth management that's evolved specifically in the last, you know, let's say 20 years that attempts to deploy capital in the pursuit of different levels of financial return together with different types of social and environmental impact. And it is uh, something where you're intentionally trying to manage for multiple bottom lines uh, through the deployment of your capital. 
And in some ways, it's a new concept. It, the term impact investing itself uh, was coined and then uh, promoted at a convening of the Rockefeller philanthropy that they had with, they brought together a group of big wigs to Bellagio, which is a retreat center that they have, um, and for a two or a three day retreat. And, and they were like, well, we're all doing this similar kind of thing. What do we call it? And impact investing is what they ended up leaving with. And the truth is impact investing actually, to my mind, goes way back. It goes back to the very first publicly traded company, which was the Dutch East India Group, where they sold shares in the company in order to raise capital and diversify risk. And that was the first time that that was done. Previously, people had been issued charters by the royalty where they would be allowed the right to engage in commerce in that way. But this is the first time that you had uh, publicly traded shares and this financed an expedition of the Dutch East Indies. And what happened was when the expedition arrived, they discovered that the Spanish and the Portuguese and the French had already kind of taken, you know, all the good spots, if you will. And so they engaged in piracy and in, in war and attacked these other trading outposts, took the, the materials, the, the spices and the goods that they had there and brought them back to Holland where they were celebrated for the great profitable kind of uh, expedition that that had been. And um, at the time, there were two Mennonites who, who objected and they said, wait a minute, we had made investments based on the business plan, which was to engage in trade. And what you did was engage in piracy. And that's a violation of our fundamental religious beliefs. And so in the one case, you had somebody who sold their shares. In another case, the other shareholder uh, engaged in what became a 10-year campaign against the Board of Governors. And it was really the first time that we had both capitalism and issues raised with regard to morality and values and belief. Interestingly, these two shareholders objected to the, the engagement in war. They did not object or make comment about the effect that this commerce had on indigenous communities in those areas as well, which is a whole nother history, of course. But in any event, and so from that first starting place, we had this tension between doing well and doing good. And that's continued through a whole series of decades of a variety of folks. And I think that the thing that's different about some of the conversation today is that I think more and more people recognize that all capital has impact and uh, all companies create you know, economic, social, and environmental value. And so the real challenge for all of us is to understand what is the nature of the value that we want to create and how do we manage our capital and our assets in order to optimize that total value? And I think that's the real kind of struggle that, that each of us have. It doesn't matter how much money you have to invest. It's a question of kind of your life and the value of your having lived and how do you understand and express that through your business, through your economics, through how you show up uh, in markets and in the economy. So how did you come to the work that you're doing today? It's purposeful. The, the way you show up is on a, the spectrum of higher purpose. Was it always that way for you? Or was this always your work? How did you step into this? Was it iterative? I think it was evolutionary. <laughs> and uh, when I was younger, when I was in my teens, all I wanted to do was be a community activist, run a nonprofit, change the world, you know, engage in very traditional kind of activism. And in my 20s, I ended up in a position where I became the founding director of the Larkin Street Youth Center in San Francisco, which works with street kids and homeless youth. 
And you know, I'm very proud of the work that we did. And today it's a, you know, a very large multi-service center for kids uh, with a large budget, very traditional kind of nonprofit. My challenge was that at the end of about four or five years of, of running that, I realized that I'd become uh, really disillusioned with the traditional approach to nonprofit management, philanthropy, public funding. At the time, I just realized that capital in the nonprofit sector often moves on the basis of politics, perception, and persuasion, and not performance. And in our case, you know, we're running a storefront operation in the Tenderloin. We got a lot of kids coming to the program off the street, but we had a, a lot of kids who would come from other programs because they weren't being served well or effectively, or they preferred our program or whatever their, the reason was. And the challenge was that the money would not follow the kids who wanted to come for services from us. And so you ended up having to do a lot of extra fundraising and watching other programs that, in my opinion, were not offering you know, quality programs or services to kids, but got funded nevertheless because they were you know, better connected politically. They you know, um, had connections in Sacramento. They were better at grant writing than I was at that time in my life. And so I just became kind of disillusioned by the whole process. And I decided I needed to, to just find something else that I wasn't quite clear what that was. And so I literally did a, a lateral ejection off of my career path when I was about 29. And through a variety of things, ended up connecting with a financier who, oddly enough, in his own way, had kind of reached a similar level place and was feeling that he was successful. He wanted to give back to the community, if you will. But all the ways that people were offering him to think about his charitable giving were almost antithetical to how he had made his wealth. There was no metrics. There was no real strategy to investing the money. At that time, there, the people didn't really think about capacity building. It was just kind of like this group got 50 grand because they fit one category. This group got 500 grand because they fit another category. But it wasn't really tied to investing in, in building the capacity of groups to execute their strategy. And so his challenge to me was, could I work with him around creating an investor approach to philanthropic capital and what would that look like? And so that was kind of, for me, the transition that I made in uh, 89. And from there, did you know at that point, I mean, the vocabulary might not even have been there, right? So you've <laughs> kind of been creating the vocabulary. No, it's very, and again, it's a little... It's just odd because at the time, like, you know, I, I spent about five months doing research on this idea of, you know, how do you take kind of market and business principles and practices and apply it to community change? And I could find some things from the 60s, you know, the late 60s and the early 70s where people had done community economic development. And this was the closest I came. But a lot of those programs had really moved away from business development and toward affordable housing with the introduction of the affordable housing tax credit. And so that became like a financial incentive. And we were really focused more on the whole idea of could you take entrepreneurial approaches to, in our case, homelessness was the area that we were interested in focusing on. And on the one hand, the mainstream perspective was that you couldn't. Uh, you know, I remember a conversation with one executive from one of the leading American foundations who said, there's one thing we know about nonprofits, it's that they can't operate business enterprises. So if you have new money coming into this space, you should put it into job training because that's they know how to do job training. Our problem was that homeless folks couldn't even get in the door for the job training programs because they were viewed as having too many barriers to employment. And so what I found was there were a group of Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area social workers 
who, when confronted with that, said, look, I mean, you know, we can't get them hired by the mainstream for-profit companies because they've already been fired by all those. We can't get them into the job training programs because they're viewed as having too many barriers. And so we're going to start X, you know, like a screen printing, bakery, landscaping, you know, these different small-scale enterprises, and we will provide kind of supported employment to our folks as they stabilize. And so those were the people that really made up, you know, the portfolio that we created. And it was out of that approach uh, to investing in their capacity to run these ventures for, you know, a, a double bottom line of social impact and, and a level of financial performance. Uh, we weren't even really that concerned about whether the money flowed back to us as long as the money was managed in a way that created more sustainability for their enterprise. That was really the focus of our work. And so we became one of the first groups to engage in what came to be called venture philanthropy. And from that, we then started pursuing a bunch of related areas of interest. So at the time in the early 90s, the mid 90s, you had a group of people in the Bay Area who had done very well in, in dot com and tech kind of ventures, and they're used to venture investing. And so they would start talking about, you know, investing for social returns. And you know, how this is what they were doing was investing for social returns. And we had used that same language, but in our case, we actually had created a framework to monetize the economic value of social impact as a proxy for value creation and use that framework to actually track financial return for the enterprises. And so I would talk to these for-profit mission-driven investors and they would say, we invest for social returns. And I would say, well, that's great. How do you track, you know, that part of the performance of your portfolio and they would literally laugh and say, no, 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 it's a metaphor. We don't actually invest for social returns, right? And I'd be like, well, you know, here's this template that we created and this is how we actually do this. And so I ended up getting more and more invitations to speak with for-profit folks. And that's how I kind of made the transition out of the philanthropic practice toward more, you know, market-based uh, investing in private equity and public and venture capital. So that I kind of grew up in the space as the space was evolving. And the guy I was working with didn't really want to set up a nationwide fund and he didn't really want to expand beyond what we were doing in the Bay Area. But he said, look, I'll cover the cost of you going out and, and talking about this work and any kind of publications or research that you want to do to kind of capture the lessons that we've learned and share those. And so that's what I started doing in the late 90s. And that's how I came on the whole concept of blended value was through that work. Wow. That's what I was just going to say is this blended value. No, that, that's amazing. So one of the questions I have around that, around your evolution with blended value on your website, you talk about how, you know, you could have created some consulting practice or kind of some institute around blended value, but yet you, you knew at some point, and I wonder if there was like some pivotal moment that you knew that your work was around changing mindsets, your work was around the thinking part, and that that was you walking your talk in the process, right? So if you can explain a little bit of that, and now that I understand, so I was really questioning, like, how did you get to that point of thinking that? And now I hear, oh, someone said, here, I'll fund you to go do that. <laughs> right. Well, and that was, that was at the start. And then what happened, though, was in the late 90s, as we started publishing this work, and as uh, this is Red F as the organizations, we started getting more of a, a national and global kind of uh, brand, I guess you'd say. I realized that I was in conversation with all these different people, each of whom thought they were very unique. So I was talking with for-profit, mission-driven investors, 
I was talking with venture philanthropists. I was talking with nonprofit social entrepreneurs, and I was talking with for-profit entrepreneurs. What they were all doing was basically bumping up against this bifurcated world that asks you to choose between doing well or doing good. You either make an investment or you make a grant. You work for a nonprofit or you work for a for-profit. And as I kind of stepped back and started thinking about this, I realized that Actually, over time, I'd become completely agnostic in terms of the organizational structure. So I didn't really care if it was a nonprofit or for-profit or cooperative. And I'd become agnostic in terms of the investment vehicle. So I didn't really think in terms of, or I'd stopped thinking in terms of a grant versus an investment. It was all just capital and it had different risk, return and impact kind of profiles depending on the strategy and the instrument or the fund. And what I realized was that what was wrong is that we were all operating in this bifurcated frame, whereas what we really should be doing is thinking about what's, what is the fundamental nature of the value that you want to create in the world? And then what are the various kind of structures and tools that you could deploy in pursuit of that value creation vision? And once I kind of like went there, it was almost like there was no going back in a sense, because... I couldn't talk to people in the either or kind of frame anymore because I, I just moved to this other place that I think other people had moved to as well. But that's part of why I started, you know, the writing and doing the, the public speaking in a way to try to provoke people around what was really, to my mind, what was really happening. What happened for me was that I had then a series of kind of accidental academic appointments in uh, around 2000. And so I had a faculty appointment at Stanford, at Harvard, at Oxford, and had basically created this body of of research or or work. And at the end of about three or four years of that, the people, the foundations that had been funding me to do that said, you should create an institute called like the Blended Value Institute to promote these ideas and stuff. And I said, well, will you endow the institute so that, you know, I'm not just on this fundraising, you know, uh, wheel and, and they were like, no, 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 we'll give you the seed funding for like three years. And then, you know, you can go raise money from other people, right? And I was like, I've already been on that route, right? And that's just complete bullshit to be in this funding posture, because then you end up kind of confusing your agenda with the agenda of the field, if you will. And you end up having an institution that you basically have to defend against other think tanks or whatever it was going to end up being. And then I just realized that instead of creating one more organization to tell people that we have to think differently about organizations, that what I would rather do would be to just find people who I felt were advancing various parts of what to my mind was a blended value proposition and see if I couldn't just slot in either behind or, you know, in support of the work that they were doing. And so that started about a 10 year period where I just became this kind of professional fellow, if you will, and had these different fellowship appointments that allowed me to do just that. And so I was the the first outside hire that Generation Investment Management made as they were creating their team. This is the global long-only public equity firm that David Blood, formerly of Goldman Sachs and Al Gore, formerly of the United States, now a citizen of the world, had launched around that same time. And while I was doing that, I was working with a nonprofit foundation that was looking at how do you scale evidence-based nonprofit organizations and and structure capital on those terms. And at the same time, I was also working with a high net worth individual out of Montana who had bought a ranch that basically was a connecting migration corridor between uh, 
Yellowstone and the Bitterroot. And so wanted to manage the ranch with respect for the animals that would be moving through the property, uh, but also with uh, a, a respect for economics. And so we put together a business plan that had an eco-lodge, uh, cattle ranching, and focused real estate development. And so we're able to put 90, 95% of the property under a conservation easement, which increased the value of some inholdings that we were then able to sell to high net worth folks. And it was a very interesting kind of integrated business strategy that he was executing. Now, none of those on their own was quite what I wanted to do, but they were all what I wanted to do. (laughs) And so it gave me just a real chance to look at these various strategies, be a part of those teams, um, be a strategic advisor to them. As that kind of finished up around the, the time of the financial crisis, I ended up again, just kind of accidentally connecting with some family offices and realized that that the family office arena was really where you could leverage capital in a unique way because families have a level of flexibility and they could think about philanthropic near market and market rate capital strategies on a much more of a holistic basis. And so I was lucky enough to be able to find just through networking and connections with folks, not because I intended to do so, but I ended up working then with five or six families who were interested in what I had at that point started calling total portfolio management and managing all of your assets with respect for impact and blended value. And so that's kind of what took me up to the purpose of capital period. And around what year was that? That would have been, I'll say four years ago. Okay. Um, I mean, and, and so I had all these disparate kind of experiences. I mean, I haven't had a straight job in like 20, 25 years. <laughs> I mean, so when we came to like uh, the pandemic and people having to work from home, I was kind of like, well, it didn't really affect me that much because I already worked from home. But what was interesting was that it also then placed me in the middle of a lot of these conversations, both in the U.S. and internationally. And so I was really fortunate to be a part of this community as we were all kind of advancing a variety of different responses to this challenge of how do you overcome the bifurcation? How do you overcome this idea that we're separate parts in terms of the value we're trying to create in the world? Perfect segue into my question about, you know, I've read your book, I have your book right here, and diving into your, your thinking you have this ability to hold the nonlinear and the linear. So in the book, you're taking in a lot of the ancient wisdom, a lot of history, a lot of different trajectories of thought and feeling and doing this deep personal reflection. And then you continue to anchor us in finance, in capital, in the facts of what we're looking at. So you have this mastery of holding the nonlinear and the linear. Where did that come from? Like, was this just evolution too? Did you go off and live with an indigenous community in the Amazon? What was your wake up moment that you actually were able to see the difference? So I guess there's two ways to think of it. One is goes back to the first part of the conversation where there are, I think, some fundamental truths that we can find if we open ourselves up to that inquiry, that part of the process. And for a lot of us, I think the truth with the big T is made up of a lot of little T truths that we discover as we move along. And so in my case, I had been a part of this whole movement around capital and investing and the role of business and all of these things that, you know, as you said, we take kind of for granted today in terms of the language and the framing and all that. And on the one hand, I felt like I should feel really successful 
like, gosh, like, look at what we've all created here. This is phenomenal. And I mean, if you think about it, if you take socially responsible investing, direct impact investing, integrated ESG, which is environmental social governance investing, these are all, to my mind, related parts of a practice. Internationally, you're looking at 30 to $40 trillion today that's being managed with consideration of some aspect of those factors. And the idea, you know, 25, 30 years ago that we would be able to say that to me is just bizarre. I mean, it's just incredible that this has actually happened. And so on the one hand, I feel like we should all just kind of celebrate and leave the field because we won, right? And people still debate whatever, you know, they debate definitions and terms and metrics and all this other stuff. But at the end of the day, this has really happened. And I think that part of why it's happened is that there is a, a, an inherent truth to this idea of connectivity and connection and whole as opposed to parts. And that for me, what happened was when I kind of woke up about four years ago and on the one hand was feeling like, wow, this is really great. On the other hand, I was looking at the conversations that the field was having and what was the focus of people's thinking. And what I realized was that everything had devolved really to tactics. How do I create a new fund? How do I measure performance of extra financial value within my portfolio? Uh, how do I engage in due diligence? I mean, all of these things. And then you have the Wall Street guys all talking about how do we create product that we can sell to this new market, right? So the whole conversation became, to my mind, it devolved to a conforming product. How do we create investment instruments that will fit nicely within existing pipelines of financial distribution. And I felt like we had, we had really lost our way. Like we had ended up focusing on the how and assuming that we all knew why we were here and what the why was about. When in fact, I realized that it was actually the other way around. That we, we had blown by the why. We all assumed we were here for the good of the planet or our communities or whatever it is. And it's only when you really get into the particulars that you realize, wait a minute, like my reference point of truth with regard to value is very different from yours, is very different from this firm's or this product. And so I started thinking, going back to my own kind of roots of reflection, really, on the nature of value. And when I realized that for myself, I kind of fallen into that value framework. I hadn't really like, it, it wasn't a logical... <laughs> <laughs> kind of, okay, you know, here's where I'm going to go next. It came out of my work and my reflections with others and my work in the community. And what I realized I needed to do was to kind of stop and understand more about how was it that we came to this bifurcated place to begin with? How, how was it that we began with this idea that you could pursue economic value in the absence of consideration of social and environmental value and impacts? And so that's what I wanted to do was to step back and understand this evolution and the one thing I should also say is that the book that you referenced, uh, you can buy it on Amazon in a hard copy, which I, I really like the hard copy, <laughs> the graphics and stuff. There's a lot of illustrations that I think complement the narrative, but it's also free in, in an ebook format and anybody can download it for free off of the website, uh, purposeofcapital.org. And I'll put the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for that. Sure. Um, yeah. So the idea of 
of the bifurcation and the disconnection. I mean, we see this in kind of all of the evolutions of sustainability and corporate sustainability. It's this kind of mainstreaming effect of we're just throwing concepts in. Oh, yeah, that feels good. And it's kind of a heart thing. It feels good. But what you're talking about, this is more of a consciousness thing. It's it's moving beyond the heart into we have to raise the consciousness. And that's the only way for people to really get that deeper connectivity. So is that kind of how you see the spectrum of cheap impact to mutual impact? What are the and, and how do you yeah, see that? Sure. Well, when we talk about impact, obviously you're going to talk about how do you understand and define that impact. And so I actually think that the first stage of impact is ignorant impact, which is you know, all of the impacts that we have in the world that we don't even stop to think about and uh, we don't consider. And then I think you move to cheap impact where you kind of do the, the lowest hanging fruit kind of thing that you can convince yourself is positive at some level. And so most business people would say, well, business, you know, creates great positive impact. We create jobs, we pay taxes. It's kind of, you know, can easily go back to the, the president of General Motors who said that, you know, what's good for GM is good for America kind of thing, right? And I think you have impact investors who kind of think that way. I'm investing in renewables. It's got to be good, you know? And yet I think that there also was... Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has the concept of cheap grace and that we can be saved in salvation within a Christian framework simply by virtue of the fact that Christ died for our sins and we're loved by God. But that's not what salvation really is about. It's not simply just kind of showing up and cashing your check and getting through the pearly gates, that you have to actually earn it at some level. And so I think when I talk about cheap impact, I'm talking about it in that context. So we then move to, to broad impact, where you can think about publicly traded companies, you can think about a variety of different ways that you can advance kind of broad, generally good impact. If, you know, some big pharma firms have great, broad, positive impact on the world through the drugs that they brought forward and the, the way that they've been able to uh, change and save lives. And when you look at the business model itself, it is not driven for necessarily positive impact. It, it really is driven for profit uh, at the expense of broad impact. And then we go to deep impact, which to my mind is when you really go into community, when you go into family, you broaden your understanding of what impact is, is by virtue of being more fully present which then opens up the possibility of what I call mutual impact. And I think that this is really, for me, the point at some level. And again, it's a little hard to, to describe, but I think that a lot of people think about impact investing as things that we do to other people. You know, we create X number of jobs. We've served X number of under-resourced communities. We've had this amount of decrease in carbon footprint. I mean, all of these things, but it's all stuff that is externally focused. And I think what we've lost sight of is that actually by engaging more with our wealth, uh, with our capital, by being more fully present in the process of the transaction and understanding more of what is represented in that transactive nature of capital, that we can open ourselves up really to change and to positive growth and in some ways, to, to realizing our, our true self, if you will, and that that itself kind of shifts by virtue of this relationship. And I think, you know, in a Buddhist tradition, you talk about the illusion of separation. You talk about the reality is that we're all one, we're all connected, and this is how we should kind of be in the world. This is why kind of right livelihood 
and other practices within the Buddhist tradition are, are so important to reflect on. And when we think about investing, it's the same thing. It's not a question of my wealth coming at the price of your health, because if you're not doing well, either financially or in terms of your health, then ultimately I'm connected to you and that affects me as well. It's the idea that in some Buddhist traditions, you cannot achieve nirvana until your neighbor has achieved nirvana. You cannot be saved until the community is saved. And it really asks us to sit more deeply with this process of connection and of being and becoming as opposed to thinking that we're there, that we have the answer, that we have the solution. I think it opens us up to just a very different way of not only managing capital, but really managing our process of living and the value that we're trying to create because we recognize that part of what's wrong with, again, impact investing in this context, but I think larger our economic frame within a Western kind of financial capitalist worldview, what's wrong with it is that we think that my job is to convince you to come and invest in this answer that I have as opposed to our working in a collaborative way to create a new answer that neither one of us might have understood from our individual position, but that we could co-create together, kind of looking forward. And I've had several people say that they didn't think that I could write this book until I hit this point in my life. And I think it's true. This is the eighth book that I've been involved in writing. It's the first one that I've written completely on my own. The other books were all about how to think about and execute strategies of social entrepreneurship and impact investing. It's really from that experience that you, you're forced to pause and step back. And I think the only way you can really do that is to have some amount of life experience that challenges you to really confront your own shortcomings and the things that haven't worked or that could have worked that didn't and blah, blah, blah. You just take a very different mindset to this if you're lucky. Now, some people don't, and they just continue to drive one answer uh, the better part of their lives. I think there is a larger quest that humanity really has. Um, and so this is why when you read The Purpose of Capital, it's an exploration of, it started out as I just wanted to understand financial and economic history. And then I realized that, well, I can't really understand that if I don't view that within the context of social and political and human history. And that got me into religious history and wisdom literature and those kind of things which took me into the sciences and physics, which oddly enough brings you back to religion. And so it became this very, <laughs> very weird. I mean, it got to the point and it was a great process. I, I took like two years of just reading and reflection. I stopped giving talks. I stopped going to conferences. I just kind of went inside for that period. But it got to the point where my wife said, look, you've got to just stop. You can't just, <laughs> you can't just read forever and not kind of, you know, pull this together in some way. And so that then became the book. Wow. How's that? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So I'm marinating in it with you. You know, when you're writing, you're marinating in it. I'm wondering if there's any part of the book, people ask you questions, you speak all the time, you present. Is there any part of the book that has gone sort of unrecognized that for you was like, hmm, surprised that nobody's asked about that? Or that's an important piece that hasn't really been brought to the light yet? Well, see, it's a little tricky because some people like yourself uh, actually read the entire book. A lot of people find that what they do is they go in and they read one chapter and we're not used to sitting with these ideas anymore. Like we're used to pretty concise answers. We're used to TikTok, which gives you whatever it is, you know, like 20 seconds of video. 
we're used to these kind of short-term engagements. And so a lot of people I find, and I've actually had people tell me this, either they get on a plane for like 10 or 15 hours and they're going to Asia or whatever, and they just like, you know, consume this book on the flight and find themselves just, you know, in this whole other place. And when you fly long distance, you go into this different mindset. Other folks would write me notes and say, you know, this is really great, but I really hate this book because I'll read like three or four pages and I'll start thinking about, well, that's, that's a really interesting point. What do I think about that? How does that relate to this or that? And they suddenly realize that they've spent like 45 minutes looking out the window, like thinking about stuff. And so it's, so I'm not sure there are parts of the book that I like, you know, that I, that resonate for me. Um, one is the chapter on nature is not the other that explores a variety of different kind of philosophical approaches to how we understand our connection to Gaia and to the earth. And so I, I like that piece. I like the closing section because all the way through the book, I try not to give people an answer to the question of what is the purpose of capital, because I really sincerely believe that we each have to really grapple with that and for ourselves come to a sense of response. I wouldn't say answer, but you know, <laughs> a sense of, okay, at this point in my life, this is how I understand these things. But at, toward the end, I talk about capital as freedom, and I talk about the place of the role of capital as a tool of liberation and as an energy, a fuel for freedom for us each individually and as communities to be able to engage in creating a different world uh, for ourselves. And I think that's the key concept of the book is that our understanding of the purpose of capital is truly a social construct. It really is you know, this idea that the purpose of capital is simply to make more money. And then, then the other question becomes, what do you do with the money once you're successful? Is really an important point to sit with because once you own the fact that it really is up to you and your community and your family to redefine capital's purpose on terms that advance you know, your vision of the world, your vision of your life and how you want to be in the world, that you've got to first make that step forward and say that what we have inherited as all of these definitions and terms and understandings about how to make money and why that should be the focus of our engagement, that that is all open for discussion and debate. And so for families, it's an incredible process to be involved in when you have, let's say, three generations at the table and they're having as a family to sit with this question of purpose. And you get a lot of first generation family members who feel that, that the money has become the point as opposed to a byproduct for having you know, created value in markets or been responsive to customers. It is not the end goal necessarily. I mean, obviously you need to have money, but for a lot of folks who make a lot of money, they recognize, if they're honest with themselves, the degree that fortune and luck play in their ability to make money. And they may be very smart, but they also have to have opportunities and be at a time and place at a certain market where you know, those answers and ideas that they have can actually generate wealth and all that. And by the time it gets to the third gen family member, it's a conversation around how do we manage our money? It's not a conversation about how do we innovate? How do we be creative in the world? How do we do all these things that the first gen really felt that their life was about? And so it can open up a whole new level of connection, which goes back to the concept of mutual impact, where families can really own the conversation in a way that allows them to become freer and not to become kind of controlled by their wealth. And for those of us who aren't ultra high net worth, 
it's a same process that we have to engage in or else we end up spending much too much, I would argue, much too much of our own time on this treadmill of wealth and materialism and being focused on these things that actually are not the point. They may be means to another end, but we have to have clarity around what the end is. You know, what is our purpose ultimately? And how do we, how do we show up in life to represent that purpose more effectively? So what you're talking about is this, like if everyone needs to get on board, it's not only those holding the wealth, it's all of us have to really redefine what capital is and what value is in order for this to work. I don't think it's going to be the top down, right? It's it's going to be us all. And so right. from that place, what is something you're chewing on right now? What is something that feels like a juicy challenge or a process you're working through? For me personally, at this stage, it really is a question of my trying to get greater clarity around calling. And at this point, where am I supposed to show up? You know, I'm 61. I'm a straight white man. I'm not going to go back and run an inner city social service agency. There are new leaders. We have a different day and age. And figuring out, like, what is my contribution to the current conversation? And part of my challenge individually is just that, honestly, there's part of me that just wants to go to the woods and read (laughs) and reflect and just be in that way. I feel like, holy moly, like I, I have been on the road in community doing this work for the better part of my life. And it's not that I'm tired, but I feel like it's time, you know, to step back and let others step forward and that that's okay. The challenge in part is there also, though, I think is a body of knowledge and perspective and wisdom that needs to be shared and offered and not promoted necessarily, but present in the conversation of the next generations that are finding their answers and their truths. I'm not a big fan of, you know, traditional neoliberalism and I don't know what the next phase really is, ultimately. And you referenced indigenous communities. I think there's a lot to be explored in that whole area of different perspectives of value and the commons and how we understand what that means. I have been collaborating with the Center on Economic Democracy on a new paper that's called Movement Portfolio Theory that looks at how do you integrate consideration of social and economic justice movements into the deployment of capital and our understanding of how to invest. So I think there's a host of new talent, really, that's taking a lot of the ideas that my generation has been promoting, grappling, living with, and reinventing them on terms that make sense for our current time of, you know, Black Lives Matter, of climate crisis, of pandemics. So I'm I'm just sitting with this opportunity and trying to keep myself open to what the next possibilities are. So that's a challenge because, you know, I've always thought I had a good vision of who I am and what I'm doing and what I want to do next. And it's really odd because this is one of the first times that I've genuinely had to stop and realize that I just, I just don't know. I'm not sure really where I'm supposed to plug in. And it could be going to the woods. I mean, I, um, Jack Miles, who's a religious historian, was interviewing a friend of his who's a Buddhist hermit. And he said to the guy, how do you change the world? You live in the woods by yourself, right? And he said, I, I changed the world by splitting wood. And I think there's a place for, for that. I also think there's a place of being an ally to those who are on the cutting edge of this work and helping to support them in all the different ways that we're called to support the change that has to happen at this point, not only in our country, but in our world. And so having clarity around that, I think will only come in time. And 
needing to keep yourself open to those possibilities. It's really can be a challenge for us because again, in American society, we're always used to having the answer and leading with our answer. And, and, and this is part of the problem is all of us are so convinced of our own righteousness that we end up in arguments with each other about things that we really shouldn't be arguing about really. You know, I, I agree with that. Being in the woods, chopping wood is how we sometimes change the world because just being so much of what you've talked about so far is also saying that we have to learn how to be in a different way. And you who are on the front lines also have to have that opportunity to just to actually embody it and be it. I had a guest, Dr. Vandana Shiva, on a few episodes ago, and I had asked her something about impact investing, and she is you know, an activist for a, a seed piracy and regenerative agriculture in India. And her answer was, you know, all impact investors should just go live on the land and grow food. And then they'll really have a whole new, a whole new body of work to bring to what impact investing is. And so I really appreciate the idea. And sometimes we think we need to keep doing and being at some point, the legacy is the energetics of actually just embodying it. It's a really interesting challenge because I do think that at different points, we answer that question in different ways. And it's hard because who I was in my 20s, I was making the right choices about my life and my engagement and how I promoted what I believed in and the community that I was a part of at that time and all that. And that is, it's so completely different from where I am today. But that doesn't mean I was wrong before, you know, it just means this is a, a different way of approaching it. And I think it, it goes back to your other question or your other uh, comment around just becoming more conscious. And I think that we are called to act, but you have to be intentional in those actions. You have to be thoughtful in those actions. There's another Taoist saying that I like very much that says, uh, don't just do something, sit there. And I, I like that idea because, it, you know, we need to be more present in our actions as opposed to acting and then trying to figure out what we did <laughs> kind of after the fact, especially in this day and age. Interesting. You know, I, I look forward to maybe having you back on this show or hearing what your next evolution is after this part becomes clear, because it'd be really interesting to know if you did have that kind of, I was about to call it a sabbatical, which is so uh, linear and Western <laughs> thing, right? Like, if, you, <laughs> if you had that other opportunity to be and coexist and all that other stuff. But what it would look like, how you would actually see your own body of work differently, possibly, or what that next evolution might bring. Sure. Well, it's part of the adventure that I think we're all on. And so it's, it's part of the, I don't know, just the joy of being in this process. And quite frankly, having the privilege of being in that process. I think for, for some of us, we're in a place where that's where we are today. For others of us, there are very real issues of food and housing and safety and security that, that really have to be addressed. And it's imperative, I think, that we, those of us who don't have those immediate issues, are in support of those who do and are grappling with those issues. And, and that's part of my challenge. I'm trying to figure out what are the opportunities that I might have to be that in an in a authentic, kind of meaningful way. And I think that in some odd way, the pandemic give some of us a chance to pause and step back, get off the road and go deeper in community, in our own neighborhoods, in our own cities, and be a part of really building the change that has to happen for people, for the earth, as we go about kind of finding our own way forward. Thank you. 
Jed, thank you so much for all the work you do. Is there one last nugget of inspiration that, you know, maybe someone's just lost in their own woods or in their own journey that you might want to share? You know, I, well, I thought that last part was pretty good. Yeah, I know. I know. I always ask this question after a really think, big nugget was dropped. I guess, no, but I guess the, the thing I'm struck by is the number of times just in my, in my own life, much less when I was working with kids in crisis or families that are imploding or the number of times when you really can get into your own head so much and, and you really think, wow, this is really, this is a really bad place. This is what it is. This is what my life has become. And in my case, that's never been the case that in fact, all of the, you know, you have to have breakdown in order to break through and that it can be very hard to stay long enough in the breakdown period to get the, to a place where you can actually break through. And I think that's true for, for individuals in terms of personal kind of growth and development. It's certainly true in terms of folks who are living in personal lives of crisis. And I think for us as a, as a society, we've got to not rush through this present moment. We've got to really hear each other. We have to hear humanity. I, I, this is one of the reasons I love reading history is because I feel like you know, Arnold Toynbee is a historian said that every generation thinks of itself as the pinnacle of human development. And in some sense, they're right, like you are. <laughs> and in another sense, every generation has thought the same thing. And so for us not to be listening to our elders, for us not to be reading history, philosophy, wisdom literature, and really bringing all the resources of humanity into our personal challenge today, it just makes no sense to me. And so this is why I think it's really important and, and why in the book, I, I ended up really taking excerpts from a lot of different authors and philosophers and spiritualists and historians, because I really feel like it's more a question of connecting ourselves with that narrative than it is simply about us and our narrative. And so the, the challenge that I think we each have is, really letting ourselves go enough to become what it is we're called to be in this next iteration. Thank you so much, Jed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. It's really my pleasure. And uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Catalyst Talks. Stay tuned for what's up next and please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. You'll find those links at catalysttalks.com. Join us we continue this conversation on social media. And if you'd like to reach out to me privately, you can send me a message at stephanietrager.com. Your attention here means the world to me. Thank you, thank you, thank you.